uh, with our part four, which is I've entitled One in Christ. Uh, up to now, we've talked about how the book of Ephesians is divided into two sections, uh, the first part being somewhat theory and concept, theology, the basics of Christianity, if you will. He begins that section by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so Paul spends time talking about the blessings we have in Christ, what that should really mean to us, how Christianity works. And then in the second part of the book of Ephesians, he talks about the resulting behavior of that, the practical application. Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So how do we walk in response to what God has done for us? In part one, we talked about the specific blessings that God gives us in Jesus Christ. That these are spiritual blessings, not just physical blessings that many people in the world enjoy just by virtue of being God's creation, but the spiritual blessings that are found only in Christ. And we talked about how that those blessings are a result of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the reason for that was that we'd be holy and blameless before God. In part two, we talked about this prayer for enlightenment that Paul had for the church at Ephesus. He wanted them to come to a knowledge and an understanding of what God had truly done for him and what that meant for them to understand the hope that they had in Christ, to understand that the value that God placed on them and that he sent Jesus to die for them, to understand the immeasurable power that God had extended toward those who believe in him. And that power was based in the fact that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that he exalted him to his right hand, and that he gave him authority over all things, including as head over the church. Now, in part three, we talked about how that in sin we are in a state of spiritual death and that God has raised us to life through Jesus Christ, through the course of the, of the world, the course of the devil, the cause of sin, the cause of death. God lifts us up in his mercy and his love. He raises us up to spiritual life in Christ Jesus. And that's done because of God's grace through our faith and what Jesus has done for us. So as we consider these things, Paul is going to now... All these things have sort of been at an individual level, if you will. In other words, each individual Christian looks at this and thinks, God did this for me. And that's true. But what, God, what Paul is going to do now is he's going to sort of widen the scope a bit and talk about the ramifications of that in our relationships with one another. And he does that by dealing with the central issue that many of the churches in the New Testament dealt with, and that is the issue of Jew and Gentile Christians and them coming together and being one body and not separate people. And so we've entitled this One in Christ because that's exactly where he's aiming with this concept of individually you've been raised to newness of life, and now it's time to come together as the household of God and build that household on the foundation of Jesus and the apostles and the prophets, as we'll read later on. So strangers brought near. The first few verses of this chapter is the concept of the Gentiles being aliens and strangers to the covenant's promise, the commonwealth of Israel, as we've read for this morning already. Therefore, in other words, because of all the things we've already talked about, the fact that you've been raised in newness of life, the fact that you've been raised from spiritual death, you have all these blessings in Christ, I want you to remember something he says. I want you to remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. We talked a little last week about the Apostle Paul and his conversion and how 
but he had a constant awareness. He wasn't afraid to acknowledge his past. He wasn't trying to hide where he came from and what he was. Indeed, he used that as a platform for the gospel and to show that if God can change me, he can change anyone. And I think this concept is, is at play here when he tells them, to you remember where you came from? You remember that at one time you were separated from Jesus Christ. You have that remembrance in mind. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget the fact that you were spiritually dead. Don't forget the fact that because of God's blessings in Jesus Christ, he raised you to spiritual life and exalted you with Jesus. Don't forget that. You know, we read in Revelation chapter 2, as, the, as Jesus gives his message to John to deliver to the churches in Asia, he talks to the church at Ephesus. And he says this to them in verse 4. He says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And listen to what he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. This is the opposite side of, I think, where we are in Ephesians chapter 2. This is the point at which we get when we don't remember where we came from. Because now what he's having to say is, listen, you've abandoned the love you first had, and now you need to remember where you fell from. Don't you remember the blessings that you had in Christ? Don't you remember what it was all about? Don't you remember the love that you had for Jesus, the love that you had for one another? But you've forgotten that. You're going through the motions. You're doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. He said, you need to repent. And so I submit to you today that we need to do this on this side of the screen. Remember where we came from. Remember the sin that we were in. Remember how God raised us. Always remember that so that we don't have to do this. So that we don't get to the point where we've left our first love, where we've abandoned that and have to remember where we fell from. Do this as preventative so we don't have to do that. So what does he want them to remember? He says, well, I want you to remember that you were separated from Christ. And everything that he talks about in the rest of this verse is a result of being separated from Christ. Separation from Christ, by virtue of being Gentiles, just because they were Gentiles, they were separated, as all Gentiles were, didn't have access to the law of Moses, didn't have access to the covenant, but they were separated from Christ. So first of all, he says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, we understand this term alien, don't we? Alienated. You might think of little green men from outer space, or you might think about illegal aliens coming into a country that aren't citizens, that are there illegally. But he says, you as Gentiles, you were separated from Christ, and in that separation, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from the family of God, from the nation of Israel. You were alienated from that. You didn't have part in that. You weren't welcome there. That's what we think of when we think of aliens. Somebody that's not, they're coming in and they're getting into our territory. They don't belong here, right? When we're separated from Jesus Christ, we don't belong to God's family. We don't belong there because we're separated from Christ. And we've talked about this concept all throughout the book of Ephesians, and we're going to talk about it more later on too, about being in Christ. The blessings are only found in Christ. You're raised in Christ. That's exactly what he's saying here. When you're not in Christ, you're alienated from God and a relationship with him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So you were once aliens, but now you've been reconciled by the death of Jesus. So number two, he says, you were strangers to the covenant of promise there in verse number 12. So you were aliens and you were strangers. 
I remember when I was in grade school, there was always these big pushes to don't talk to strangers. And there was McGruff the crime dog and all the different uh, marketing campaigns that don't talk to strangers. If you're walking home from school, I don't even know if that happens much anymore with kids, but back in the day, we used to walk home from school some. Don't talk to strangers. Just walk home, walk to school, walk home. From, don't. Why? Because we don't know strangers. We don't know, know who they are. We don't know what they, what they do. We don't know what kind of people they are. We don't trust them. And when we're separated from Christ, we are strangers to God. We're outside of his family. We're not trusted. He says, you Gentiles, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. The Gentiles didn't have access to the covenants that God had made with the nation of Israel and with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, with Noah. They didn't have part of those covenants. Romans chapter 9, verse 3, Paul said, I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them, to the Israelites, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. You see, God made covenants with the nation of Israel and not with the Gentiles, at least up to this point. And so he's reminding them where they came from. This is who you were. You were aliens. You were strangers. You weren't part of the family of God. You weren't trusted. You didn't belong. But then what does he say? You were without hope. You were without hope. And this phrase here, no hope and without God, he's basically repeating himself right there, isn't he? Because without God, there's no hope. And if you don't have hope, that means you don't have God. You're without hope in the world. So as strangers, as aliens, people separated from Christ, we are without hope. Again, without Christ, there's no hope. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. When Paul wrote this, he wasn't telling people, hey, when someone you love dies, you shouldn't grieve. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you shouldn't grieve as others who have no hope. Because their grief is based on the fact that after this life is over, there's nothing. We don't have any a hope of eternal life. And that's the kind of hope we're talking about here. Not some nebulous wish or desire, but an assurance that when this life is over, I've got eternal life. He said there are people in this world who don't have that hope, and that's why they grieve when they lose loved ones. You Gentiles, you were once strangers. You were once aliens. You were once separated from Jesus Christ. You once had no hope, but all that has changed because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, but now, he's contrasting, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. Why were they brought near? How were they brought near? By the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, the blessings we have in Christ, brought them near. So that they're no longer strangers, they're no longer aliens. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from, from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Paul's not asking them to remember these things to despair. Remember the hopeless and helpless people you used to be. Remember the, the pitiful wretches you were. And not trying to keep them down, not trying to beat them down, but trying to get them to realize just how blessed they are. They were separated from Christ, and now they've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. What an amazing blessing these people experienced with the precious blood of Christ. So he's going to now transition and bring them together, bring the two groups together. 
He's going to talk about Christ being our peace. And it's a twofold peace, as we'll see in here in just a minute. But peace between Jew and Gentile, first, that he talks about here. He himself is our peace, he says in verse 14, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, this dividing wall of hostility he's talking about, he's talking about the, a wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. And there was hostility there. We read in John chapter 18, verse 28, when Jesus is in the middle of his trial and crucifixion, it says, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. This is just one example of many that we find in the New Testament of Jews looking down at Gentiles and thinking, I'm going to be defiled if I'm around them. They, when they were taking Jesus to Pilate, they wouldn't even enter his house or his headquarters because it would defile them, and it was right in the middle of the Passover, and they, didn't want to, they wouldn't be ritually clean in their own eyes if they went into this Gentile's headquarters. We see examples like in, in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul confronts Peter in Antioch about the fact that he, wouldn't be, he was eating with the Gentiles, and when the other Jews showed up, he separated himself. That hostility was real. It was the primary issue that the church dealt with in its infancy. As the Gentiles started coming into the church, this was the, the issue of the day. We, we think of different issues that we face uh, in our day and age. It, it's not one of them that we face, really. We don't deal with this Jew-Gentile thing. They did. It was big to them. And there was hostility from the Jews towards the Gentiles. There was hostility from the Gentiles towards the Jews. Because the Jews thought, we have the law. We're God's chosen people. And these unclean Gentiles, I don't know about them. And the Gentiles were like, well, y'all are all arrogant and high and mighty and self-righteous. And there was hostility there. But what he's saying here is Jesus is our peace. He's broken down that wall of hostility. And he's done that in his flesh. Now, this is important, I think, because it, it, it shows us the insignificance of the flesh in this situation. It says he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I think he's referencing back to Ephesians 2.11 that we read earlier. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And here's what I think he's, what he's saying when he says he's broken it down in his flesh. Whether you're a Gentile and in your flesh, by ver just for the fact that you were born a Gentile, as biologically, you were separated from Christ. You were outside the covenants of God. And so you were separated. And that hostility was there because of just the fact that you're a Gentile. You're born as a Jew. Biologically, ethnically, you're born a Jew. And if you're a male, you're circumcised the eighth day. And because of that thing that was done in the flesh, that made you the people of God. But what he's saying here now is in his flesh, he's abolished that. He's taken that away. And it doesn't matter in the flesh if you were a Gentile. It doesn't matter in the flesh if you're a Jew. That wall of hostility has been broken down by the death of Jesus Christ. And he's made us one, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He's talking about the law of Moses there. And the fact that the law of Moses was nailed to the cross when Jesus died there. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and nailing it to his cross. 
He broke down that wall that separated Jew and Gentile. He made peace between Jew and Gentile. And it doesn't matter anymore what you were born into, what your bloodline is, who you're related to, whether or not you were at once in a covenant relationship with God through the law of Moses or whether you were not. That wall of hostility has been broken down. And so the Jews can no longer claim superiority, nor can they forbid the Gentiles from entering because neither one of those things matter anymore. What matters is our faith in Jesus Christ. And I mentioned earlier, it's a two-fold piece. He did this. He abolished the law of commandments, expressed in order to that, or because, number one, he might create himself one new man in place of the two. So what he's talking about here is peace between Jew and Gentile. He's take, making one new man in place of the two, the two separate peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's making one new. And so what he's saying here is it's not that God reached out and made a covenant with the Jews, and he reached out and he made a covenant with the Gentiles. What he's saying is he abolished that whole wall of hostility, and now he's making both people into one group called Christians. And instead of Jew and Gentile, it's just Christians, faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the first part of the twofold peace, peace between, between man, between Jew and Gentile. Number two, he says, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. So the purpose of bringing us together wasn't just to bring us together and make us all happy and family together, but it was to reconcile us all to God in one body. So God didn't have to say, okay, I'm going to reconcile the Jews and then I'll reconcile the Gentiles. He said, no, I'm getting rid of all that. I'm bringing them all into one body and I will reconcile that one body to me through Jesus Christ. So that's the twofold peace. <clears throat> he came and preached peace to you who are far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews. He brought them together and saved them both in one new body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. He's using the same verbiage, the same language. We brought together in one body, and we're saved by one spirit. And we become the household of God. Not just a bunch of individuals trying to figure it out on our own. And this is really where everything sort of culminates, I think. It's not just that we can have a relationship with God individually. It's not just that my sins can be forgiven and that I'm lifted up and exalted with Christ. And I enjoy all those spiritual blessings. But it's that I do that and I do so and it becomes even more precious to me, even more important to me when I do it with all of you. When we come together as a congregation, when we come together as the church, as a whole, the household of God. And what we can accomplish at that point becomes so much greater than what we can accomplish individually. He says in verse number 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. So he's referencing back to the first part in verse 12 where he talks about that. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You're not like that anymore, he says. We're all one family. We're all one household. Now you're fellow citizens. Instead of being aliens, you're citizens. Instead of being strangers, you're family. You're members of his household. You're all coming together. You know, when we begin to understand this concept, because there's so many people in the world who will say, well, I'm, just, I'm a Christian on my own. I have a very personal faith, 
And I can be a Christian without anyone else. I don't have to be a member of a church. I don't have to go to church on a regular basis. I don't have to spend time with other Christians. I can just be my own Christian. That's not how God designed the church to work. Yes, we have to have individual personal relationships with God. We have to be personally reconciled to God by being obedient to the gospel and coming to him in faith. But that's not the end of it. That's just the beginning. And part of growing as a Christian means we come together as a family and grow with one another, and we're the household of God. Not much of a household with just one person. I wouldn't consider that a household. We are a household of God, and we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, as it says in verse 20. A household that's built on a strong foundation. We all understand how foundations work, and cornerstones aren't really a thing anymore, I guess. I don't suppose they really do much of a cornerstone thing anymore, unless there's something I don't know, which is a lot about construction. But a cornerstone in this day and age was the very first stone that was placed in the foundation. And the stone was true, and it was level, and it was plumb, and it was set just right so that everything else that was built off that, the rest of the foundation, the rest of the building, would be oriented and based on that cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the household of God. He's where it all starts. He's where it all begins. Without Jesus as the cornerstone, everything else falls apart. He says on that also is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Read a lot of commentaries asking about, well, what, what does it mean by prophets? Is he talking about the Old Testament prophets? Is he talking about the New Testament prophets? To my mind, it doesn't matter. In fact, I think he's talking about both. Obviously, the apostles, excuse me, the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied about Christ, prophesied about the church. I think he's talking about both, and I don't see any reason to be dogmatic either way. The point is, Jesus Christ began the work, the apostles and the prophets continue the work, and we build on the foundation that they have laid. It's his foundation, the foundation of Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. You know, he's talking about all these problems of division at the church of Corinth. I don't want to get into Danny's territory too much on stuff he's working on, but there was a lot of division in Corinth. And they were saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos. I am of Cephas. And they were dividing, and they were dividing allegiances. And Paul was trying to tell them, that's not what this is about. And he said, you know, I laid a foundation, but that's all I did. And somebody else is building upon that foundation. He says, let each one take care how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He said, listen, it's not about me or the work I'm doing. He said, it's all based on the foundation of Christ, the work that he did. We can't build any other foundation than that. We can't go apart from that and try something new. We can't try to make allegiances somewhere else. It's all in Jesus Christ, because that's where the household of God has to be built, on the foundation of Christ. Because that's where we grow. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again. This concept of in Christ. How many times Paul uses the phrase in Christ or in him, in Jesus. So many times in the book of Ephesians he does that. Verse number 21. In whom, talking about Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There's the, there it is again, in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
He's going to hammer this over and over and over. Why? Because it's in Christ that all of this matters. And if we're not in Christ, not only does it not matter, but it doesn't work like it's supposed to. In, in Christ, only in Christ can we grow like we're supposed to, both individually and as a group. That's the only place we're going to grow as the household of God is in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, he expounds on this even more. He says in verse 15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, into Christ. There it is again, into him, into Christ, from whom, from Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This growth that happens, it only happens in Christ. We grow up in every way into him, to the head. The whole body, it's joined and held together. It's joined and held together by Jesus. And when everybody is joined and held together by Christ, when individually we have strong relationships with Jesus and then we come together as the body, guess what's going to happen? When everything's working properly, the body's going to grow. It's going to grow into something that God intended it to be. And that something is a holy temple. The body of Jesus Christ is the temple of God. The body grows into a holy temple in the Lord, into him you also being built together to a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what a temple is, right? The original concept of the temple was a dwelling place for God. When it was the tabernacle in the wilderness, God would come down into the camp of Israel and his Spirit would come down upon the, the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant that was in the holy place inside the tabernacle. It was a dwelling place for God. The temple was God's dwelling place. And so what he's saying here now is you, as individual Christians, coming together as the household of God, building on the foundation of Christ and the apostles and the prophets, you're building something, and what you're building is a temple of God, a dwelling place for God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about this more. He says in verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's what a temple is. That's what it means to be the temple of God. It means God wants to be with us. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to walk with us and have a relationship with us. In verse 17, he says how to do that. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separated from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. I will, come, I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's how we become the temple of God collectively. We come together and we grow together and we build the household of God on the foundation that Jesus laid, the apostles laid. And we grow together in love and in knowledge and strength and in numbers. And we build a holy temple that God is pleased to dwell in. We have to ask ourselves this question. Is that the kind of congregation we are? I believe it is here in Amarillo. I believe this congregation is a dwelling place for God. And God's temple is us individually, as he rules in the hearts and minds of us individually, and as he rules in the hearts and minds of us collectively as we come together and become one in Christ. As our understanding of God's blessings and what he's done for us grows, I think it there's just this natural process of a building and us coming to 
to, to new revelations and new understandings. It starts with that individual relationship. And that's where it does start. Each individual person has to decide that they want to give their life to Jesus. I can't make that decision for you. You can't make that decision for me. But once we begin that relationship, we have to understand that it's more than just about me. It's more than just about you. It's about us together becoming one in Christ, growing together as a family, as the household of God, and building this congregation and the church across the world into a a temple that God is pleased to dwell in. We read in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, he says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That's what he wants us to be, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you've not begun that journey, if you've not become a member of the household of God today, I want to ask you the question, why are you waiting? Understand and realize the importance of what Jesus has done for you. And understand that on an individual level. If you've never given your life to Jesus, now's the time to do that. Now's the time to accept the grace that has been offered to you. Repent of your sins, confess Jesus as the Son of God, and be buried with him in baptism. And when you do that, God adds you to his family. He adds you to his household. And then give your, give your life to God and give your life to building this congregation or whatever congregation you attend. Use that as an opportunity to join that household and build it up as a temple to God where God is pleased to dwell. If you're subject to the gospel call, if you need the prayers of the church, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.